Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. And as you're finding that passage of Scripture, I know in the house today we've got guests from many different states, but we actually have one of our missionaries from Macedonia. I'm going to ask Larry to just stand up so you know who you're praying for. Get a face to the name. Thank you, Larry. Uh, his mother of 96 years passed away earlier this month, and so he's back in the States and had the great privilege of uh, officiating his mother's funeral, a woman who loved the Lord and is now face-to-face with her Savior. But please, after service, just take a moment to go and shake his hand, give him a hug, interact with Larry just a little bit. Don was unable to, to travel with him this time, but we're, all, we're so thankful that you're here to worship with us today. And we so love the Blairs serving in Macedonia. So 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to work through the full chapter this morning. And so please follow along as I read from God's word. <clears throat> when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Beroth. For Beroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Barathites fled to Gitiam and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimon, the Barathite, Rechab and Bana, set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed, in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon the Barathite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary, adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. 
hear the word of the Lord. Now, if you're like me, you read 2 Samuel chapter 4 kind of in passing and think that is very gruesome. We want to kind of read that quickly and kind of move on. Not sure how long we want to dwell on it. What exactly is there to dwell on? And I just want to be real transparent. Those were some of the thoughts as I'm working through this passage and begin praying about how, how to preach it this morning. But there is, there is much in this text for us, I pray, that the Lord would use it to edify his people, to build us up. Now, if you haven't been with us through our study through 2 Samuel and you just hear the reading of chapter 4, you're probably trying to get your bearing, bearings, trying to figure out what exactly we're doing here, who are we talking about. Hopefully, I will be able to uh, clarify some things, make what seems to be jumbled a little clearer for you this morning. I want to do so by um, first just the, the big picture. David is king in Hebron just over the tribe of Judah at this point. Saul has died. Saul's son was put in place over the rest of Israel by, his, by Saul's commander, Abner. In the last chapter where we were last Lord's Day, Abner unfortunately sees the end of his life. Uh, before we get to some of those details, David is king in Judah. And I want us to just think for a moment about something that David wrote in the Psalms and let this be the beginning of what's guiding us into this passage. So in Psalm 37, here are a few verses that David, inspired by the Spirit of God, pens. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. So in 1 Samuel, by the prophet Samuel, David is anointed as the king of God's people. Saul was ruling as king, but God was, David was God's anointed. And even after Saul's death, David is in this holding pattern, so to speak. He, is not, he has not seen his, his true kingdom come to fruition, but he's serving for seven and a half years in Hebron over the tribe of Judah. And in the last chapter, just to kind of let you understand that he's preaching these words to himself, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Just in the last chapter, we saw some things beginning to unfold. David's house growing stronger, Saul's house growing weaker. And in the course of chapter 3, some details unfolded that were really important in David's house growing stronger. And it, a lot of it had to do with Abner, the commander of Saul's army. Abner, seeking what seemed to be to make much more of himself, moves away from Ishbosheth and towards David. He got upset with some of the things that Ishbosheth had uh, called him out on, uh, being with one of Saul's concubines, and all of that kind of unfolded. He blew up and moved his allegiance 
it seemed, towards David. And so the outworking of that chapter is Abner moving his allegiance towards David, going to be a proponent of creating peace and bringing the whole land of Israel over into David's leadership. David's watching this unfold, and you have to just imagine the Lord is doing something. What he had promised, we're starting to see, as I'm waiting, things fall into place, so to speak. And as David welcomes Admer to his table, once an enemy, now a friend, as they break bread and then Abner leaves, David's commander-in-chief, Joab, whose younger brother, Asahel was actually slain by Abner, if you're following all that. He has a lot of beef towards Abner. Hears that Abner was there. Joab was out with the men um, raiding and, and conquering. He hears that Abner was with David and has now left. And so he devises a plan to call Abner back to a place where Abner assumed there was peace. And he kills, he murders Abner. Joab murders Abner. So I say all that to create the context of what David may be experiencing, where things start to move in a direction that seems to fulfill what God had promised. He was anointed as king. Now it's starting to come about, and his commander has slaughtered Abner. And where there seemed to be some growing peace, moving in the right direction, he's probably going, what, what now is going to happen? Because in the midst of this grieving over Abner, there's, there's a eulogy, there's a burial. The people seem to see that David wasn't part of that murder. Ishbosheth is still the king. He's still reigning over the other tribes of Israel. And so David, committing his way to the Lord, is trusting in him, trusting that God will act. He's being still before the Lord and waiting patiently. For him. He doesn't know how Ishbosheth's going to respond to hearing of Abner's murder, whether or not there really will be peace in the land. And so I think this is really helpful for any of us. Obviously, we are not kings over tribes of Israel. Any of us in a holding pattern, waiting upon the Lord, not knowing how the story is going to unfold, but knowing that we can, we can commit our way to him and trust in him, and he will act. Now, we're told in chapter 3 that David is growing stronger, and Saul and his camp, so to speak, is growing weaker. In chapter 4, we see evidences of this weakening of Saul's camp, Saul's rule, Saul's kingship. Obviously, Saul has died at this point, but his son is in place, there is still a divide within the kingdom of God. We see Ishbosheth, a description, Saul's son. When he heard of Abner's death, his courage failed and Israel was dismayed. So the, the narrator, the author is giving us glimpses of the weakening of Saul's camp. We also get a description of Jonathan's son, which is interesting at this point, five years old, becomes crippled because of the events of hearing Saul and Jonathan's death and the nurse running and having an accident, and he becomes paralyzed. He's crippled because of that accident. Interesting description given to us right now in chapter 4, but we're going to return to this 
a little bit later, but just know that Ishbosheth's response to Abner's death, this fear and trembling, the description of uh, Jonathan's son being crippled, all of this is to help paint this picture that Saul's kingdom is weakening and David's kingdom is growing stronger and stronger. And then lastly, there's this description of Ishbosheth's captains of raiding bands, these two evil brothers, Rechab and Bana. Just the description of how they murder Ishbosheth also reveals not strength, but rather weakness. And so we, we, we get a, a description of the events that unfold an unfortunate end to Ishbosheth's life in verses 5 through 8. And so we read that this, these two brothers conspire. They obviously were known in this area because they came and looked like they were coming to get wheat. And yet, in the middle of the day, when Ishbosheth is, is napping, they make a move and they end up killing him, murdering him. The description's given to us from two different angles. Same event giving uh, just other, other descriptive marks and details of what actually transpired and how they went about murdering Ishbosheth. Now, their actions are very important because after they murder him, and this is graphic, cutting off his head, remember Saul, Ishbosheth's father, was also killed, not in this scene, but on a battlefield, but his head was also taken. But these two young men think, this is the strategy. We're going to make this long trek from where we have killed Ishbosheth all the way back to Hebron to present Ishbosheth's head to David in a way of showing that he is king and we have played into eliminating all of his enemies. Now, I'm just thinking there has to be words spreading throughout Israel when we open up. 2 Samuel, and a very similar event happens from an Amalekite. If you remember, after Saul's death, he brings Saul's crown and armlet to David, presenting it to him, thinking that he's going to find favor with the king, with God's anointed, by showing him his enemy is now defeated, and I'm bringing you the evidence of that. And you just have to think, surely these two brothers had heard about the Amalekite who was then slain on the spot by David. It did not go well for him. And you want, you want to just ask, what were they thinking, thinking that they're going to take Ishbosheth's head and have a, a different result? But as I was thinking about this, it really is how Albert Einstein described insanity doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And in a sense, these brothers are thinking, we're going to do something like the Amalekite did and expect something different when we present it to David. And to think about that, that definition of its insanity, thinking about our own lives, this really is the reality of all of us when we, when we dabble and participate in sin. Same working definition that Einstein gave, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We buy into the deceitfulness of sin, participate in it, go after it, thinking maybe this time it'll be different. 
Maybe this time it really will bring that lasting joy and pleasure and satisfaction. And yet again and again, it is a broken cistern that runs dry. Now you may go, well, that's a big jump of application. But really, this idea of doing something that has already been done and expecting a different result, we can, we can apply that to our lives because their action in all was sinful. I'm not saying we're going out and murdering people and expecting to receive blessing from it, not at all. But in the act of all sinful behavior, whether it's lust or speaking ill of something, someone to make much more of yourself, to be looked at differently from others, all of that, it's all, it's all a deception thinking that it's going to deliver on a promise that it fails every single time. These two guys also, as they're presenting to David, the head of Ishbosheth, in verse 8, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. What we see here are redeemer pretenders in these two brothers. They are, in a sense, saying, because of what we've done, David, the Lord used us as a means to bring about the conquering and defeating of your enemies. We are God's chosen instrument for you to uh, receive what is due to you, the kingdom in full. And at that moment, there is in all of us, a temptation when presented something like this, like this is the person or thing that has achieved or accomplished what we desired to make much of that thing or that person. The brothers were wanting to be made much of for their actions, murdering Ishbosheth, thinking that will attain um, whatever reward that they desired within, within David's kingdom. And David's response is so helpful here. If you walk away with nothing else, the, the, the title of the sermon is As the Lord Lives in verse 9. That's where we find it. They present David with this as redeemer pretenders, like they're the ones that have accomplished what he needed to have accomplished. And his response is so grounded and rooted in rich biblical truth. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. As the Lord lives. Gentlemen, you have no idea what you're talking about. He has been faithful again and again to, to be my sole redeemer in the face of every adversity that I have encountered over years and years and years of following him. In a sense, there is gratitude in David's response that is nurturing his devotion to God regardless of what's coming his way. So there could have been a temptation to idolize, to begin to almost praise and worship the action of these two men and lose sight of the true Redeemer. So in that moment, while for us reading it, we're going, oh man, if you read chapter one, you know that these guys bring in this, the head of Ishbosheth. it's not gonna go well for them. 
But in the moment, as David has waited years for this deliverance, he had been on the run and now in Hebron for seven and a half years waiting upon the Lord. There had to have been at least the temptation in the moment as the head is being delivered to think, these guys really have delivered me. A temptation to idolize or to shift praise and worship where it is not due. But yet, we see in David's response, as the Lord lives, he is the one who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And so, gratitude for what God has done in our lives nurtures devotion to God and God alone and really works as an antidote for idolatry. Gratitude for what God has done creates in us, fuels our devotion to him as our sole redeemer. Regardless of other things that begin to vie for our affections and point our gaze away, when we, when we rehearse what God has done for us, that nurtures, that fuels our devotion. An example from church history in AD 155, you probably have heard the name Polycarp of Smyrna. He was brought before the authorities and told to recant of the Lord Jesus and to bow down to Caesar, calling Caesar Lord and burn the requisite pinch of incense. This is what he was called to do before all the authorities, threatened and this is kind of the, the way that it unfolded. The, the, the consul assured him that he had wild beasts and would feed Polycarp to them if he refused. Sin for them, Polycarp replied. If you despise the wild beasts, threatened the consul, I will send you to, to the fire. Swear and, 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 and I will release you. Curse the Christ and I will let you go. And we maybe have heard this before, but, but Polycarp's response is right in line with David's. Eighty and six years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? So the words may be a little different than David's, but it's the same gratitude of the true redeemer of his life. And in the moment where he may be called to recant, may be called to, to worship or exalt something or something, someone or something else. In that moment, his heart of gratitude was firmly fixed with his devotion upon the Lord, just as David is here in verse 9 before us. What we also see in David, in the way that he is leading as king, the way that he responds to these two brothers, we get a glimpse of of justice, biblical justice playing out before our eyes. And it actually is an excellent encouragement for the saints to see an example, even if it's just a small little example hidden away in 2 Samuel chapter 4, this example actually should bolster and encourage us as we long for God's justice, long to see it, so when we look at how he responds, some maybe go, this is, this is graphic, this seems extreme, but he puts these two 
two brothers almost immediately to death, striking them down because of their wicked deeds. This should remind us of what David's playing out from God's word. This is not a king going rogue, but a king adhering to God's word and faithfully playing it out. So think, for me, think with me for a moment, even from Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So sacred is the life of any man, since every human bears the image of God, that only by the death of the murderer can the murder be avenged. So Ishbosheth slaying violated God's law, and what we see is justice playing out before us by David's command to have them slain on the spot. He refers to Ishbosheth as a righteous man, but in context of him playing out justice as God's appointed authority, the righteous man is just to indicate how unrighteous and wicked the act of murder against him was. He was laying in his bed asleep at noonday, and y'all went in and struck him dead. That was so far out of the bounds, so against God's law, the only just thing is for you yourself to be struck down this day. David was God's servant in punishing murder. Just as the New Testament teaches that governing authorities, Romans chapter 13, today are given the sword as an instrument of death to be the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer or on the wrongdoer. Brothers and sisters, this is a good thing that God has ordained. Giving, giving the governing authorities, like we see an example as, as David being the king, even today, those who are placed in governing authority, that sphere of sovereignty to wield the sword to punish the evildoer. This is God's justice being played out before us, and that is good, and that is right. And we see that in David's example in Hebron. Now, as we think about this being an encouragement to us. What I mean by that, this last week, uh, my wife and I, a little late to the party, it's not really a party, but late to the event of watching Sound of Freedom. If you haven't seen it, uh, adults, children, use your own discretion and discernment on, on age appropriateness to watch that, but the content of the, fi the film of sex trafficking and the horrendous abuse of children all over the world, even in America, heightens your awareness and longing to see the justice of God played out on wicked deeds. And that was just stirred up as I'm preparing for this sermon. And for us to be encouraged, what I mean by that is to know that even, even though, as one commentator said, and this little story is just a micro-justice enacted under David's regime, regime it actually points towards a macro justice that David's promised descendant, the Lord Jesus, will enforce throughout the earth in his own time. This is that encouragement that God's justice, according to his perfect plan and timing, will unfold on all wicked deeds. If there is injustice in your life, 
You go back to Psalm 37 where David was counseling himself, so to speak, waiting on the Lord patiently. In the New Testament, we are told, vengeance is his, says the Lord, not ours. He is right, just, and good, and will bring about justice. We can stake our lives upon knowing who God is and how he rules and reigns and all the wicked deeds that have done, been done against you or others that you love or that you see in the world that just breaks your heart. Be encouraged. We serve a God who is just. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Trust in the Lord. Now I want to shift here as we kind of come to the the close and reflection on this passage. I want you to think about this. God's willingness to take away even good things that we love in the place of him has been referred to as severe mercy. You may be going, well, where, where are we getting this in, in 2 Samuel chapter 4? I want to take us back to the beginning and look through the lens not only of David, but the, the people of Israel. And this goes all the way back to 1 Samuel. The people wanted a king if you remember, like the world. That's what they longed for. They wanted, they thought this was good, this was right, this is what's gonna make them happy and flourish. We want a king like the world. And God gives them Saul. Saul as their king. David is the man after God's own heart. God's anointed to be king over his people. The people of Israel are acting in rebellion when they're longing for a king like the other peoples. And that act of rebellion is continuing to play out even to the beginning of this chapter where Ishbosheth is still ruling over many of the tribes outside of Judah of Israel. He's still in place representing Saul's kingdom. The description that the, the narrator gives us is very helpful. The weakening of Saul's kingdom, the death of Ishbosheth, and that interesting description of Jonathan's son who was crippled at the age of five. Okay, so to kind of bring this all together, God's willingness to take away even good things that we love in the place of him has been referred to as a severe mercy. I want to submit to you the people of Israel who have gone astray. God and his severe mercy through evil deeds is using what the two brothers meant for evil for ultimately good, the, the slaying of Ishbosheth, the removal of Saul's son, and the only remaining person in the line that could possibly be raised up and rule as Saul's head, the son of Jonathan. He takes down Ishbosheth in a severe mercy. This five-year-old is crippled, unable to function in that leadership capacity. He is removing the things that had drawn the people of God away from him. In his severe mercy, pulling those things away and ultimately bringing his people back under his anointed king. 
I would submit to you this day that that is still the way that God in his kindness towards us a lot of times plays out his sanctifying sanctification in our own lives. It would look like from the outside a severe thing, but in the context of God's love for you and what he knows is ultimately best for you, it is a beautiful, severe mercy. God is willing to inflict us with painful suffering, stripping away all that we cling to in the place of him. So here's an example, an illustration. There was actually a book titled Severe Mercy, written by Sheldon Van Aken. Could have said that last name wrong. Forgive me. Sheldon Van Aken. This is what I want to describe to you. He, he and his wife live in the time of C.S. Lewis's life and ministry, so we're going back a little bit. But in this story, it is an illustration of what I'm trying to drive at. So he is one who professed faith in Christ and his wife, Jean. So you've got Sheldon and Jean, now professing believers, dramatically converted under the influence of C.S. Lewis's life and ministry. Sheldon and Jean had been a very uncommon couple. Some may relate to this, others not. So passionately devoted to each other that they made a pact, and they called this pact in their marriage a, a, a shining barrier, a shining barrier, an agreement that they would do everything together so that everything in their lives would serve to increase their love. They took it so far that they agreed to forego having children because Jean would experience something that Sheldon wouldn't actually experience. Now that may, in your mind, go, that's a little weird and twisted, but that's how much they wanted to cultivate this shining barrier of their love for one another. So this was obviously before they were converted to Christ. After their conversion to Christianity, however, it soon became clear that Christ intended to invade the shining barrier so as to make himself the crowning love of their lives. Sheldon resented this at first, insisting that his own ideas of love should have preeminence over Christ. Over time, he watched his wife Jean grow more and more in love with her Savior. And this, this created some, some issues in his struggle to not make her the most important thing of his life. She saw this in her husband, and in such concern for him, there's recorded prayers of her praying, God, do whatever you must do, even take my life, if it will help my husband. And sure enough, she got some weird uh, illness and did not battle it long before dying. And it's interesting, Sheldon then has correspondence with C.S. Lewis, really out of despair, because his all-consuming love had been taken from him. In an attempt to make sense of his feelings, he communicated with C.S. Lewis, admitting that he wanted to keep his wife in the place that Christ demanded for himself. And C.S. Lewis's answer is what I want us to, to look at. C.S. Lewis answered with words that also aptly apply to God's severe mercy, his rough dealings with rebellious Israel, even within our passage this morning, disciplining his people in their lives in many ways to bring his wayward people back. This is what he wrote. 
you have been treated with a severe mercy. It is not God's wrath nor God's malice that causes God to afflict those whom he intends to save. It is his loving, severe mercy, which would strip away all that stands in the way of true and saving faith, so that God's people may gain the higher privilege of rejoicing with great wonder at the sight of his glorious Son. The same sight that filled even a dying Jean as she's pointing her husband in a moments before she even leaves this earth, pointing her husband to, to, gaze upon, to gaze upon Christ and point all of his affections towards him. All of that is to say, as C.S. Lewis encourages and counsels this man who is struggling, that his, his jewel, his treasure was taken from him, that it is God's kindness and his severe mercy that he would draw your focus your affections on the only one that can truly satisfy and meet all of your needs. One pastor, Richard Phillips, says in response to this thought, if our waywardness, if in our waywardness we view God's mercy as severe, we nonetheless rejoice over every stroke, every loss, and every trial that leads us to the crowning mercy of knowing Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be our response, that we could praise God and his severe mercy within every stroke, every loss, every trial, if it's leading us to our affections being stirred and our gaze pointed on Christ and Christ alone, we would rejoice that God would see fit to bestow upon us this type of severe mercy. And then as we, as we come to a close, I spent a little bit of time talking about the justice of God. And for us, that should be an encouragement that there will be justice. As we sit in this room, if you forget what Christ has accomplished, all of this as, as King David is giving us just a glimpse of the substance to come as a true king that will rule and reign, yes, his justice will reign and it will come and we can be encouraged by that. But just remember this reality. That same king of justice, all of us who are sinners and deserve that justice, that should be terrifying to us if we were outside of Christ. This king who is a king of justice is also, and this, this should make our minds explode and our hearts beat so hard for this king. He is not only a God and king of justice, he is the one king who actually lays down his life to make those who are unjust just before a holy God. He is the one who achieves that right standing before a holy and God, a holy God for us. So the king who is just is a king who lays his life down so that we can experience being justified, being made right, being made whole before a God who otherwise has his wrath pointed on us because of our rebellion and sin. This is the marvel, this is, this is as we reflect upon uh, the, the glimpses of King David, we, we should stand back in awe and wonder of how this ultimately is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, our King who is just 
and the king who lays his life down so that enemies, once who were far off, can be made friends of God. David's response, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, the theme of God being alive can be terrifying for those outside of Christ, can be the the greatest encouragement for those inside of Christ. If you are in Christ this morning, rejoice in the reality that God is alive. God lives and he redeems. For those outside of Christ, friends, see this as your day of repenting of your sins, of believing upon Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, for the gift of eternal life. The king who is just will inflict his justice. He has promised to return. There will be a day of judgment for those in Christ. We rejoice that our king comes. For those outside of Christ, may you see your need for a savior. And may, be, may this be the day of salvation. Let us pray. Father, may the psalm that we have looked at this morning, David's words in Psalm 37, be our response. May we commit our ways to you, O Lord. May we trust in you, knowing with certainty that you will act. May we be still before the Lord and wait patiently for you. God, help us as your children to respond in this way, to be built up and encouraged wherever we find ourselves this day with these glorious truths. And as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 4, we pray by the power of the Spirit that you would apply what we have looked at to our hearts and our minds. And may our King, Christ our King, be lifted up in this place even now. Give us eyes to see the kingdom of God. Help us to correctly understand his rule and reign and our glad submission as as followers, as disciples, as servants to the King of Kings. And we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.